listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. series, um, or it's really a theme for the year, which is the tagline of Red, which you would have seen on the signs as you walked in, which is more than me, the idea that contrary to the great ideology of our day, that it's all about you, that there's actually something bigger going on in the world, that there's a story which is bigger than you, there's a God that's bigger than you, there's a purpose that's bigger than you. And as a church, We really feel this year that God's asking us to push into what it means to live a life that's more than me. And one of the containers that we've been talking about, or a metaphor, which I mentioned before when we prayed for Cheryl, is this idea that Scripture talks of a living temple. We're not used to temples. Um, They seem like something from the ancient world or perhaps in another culture. But the concept that really a temple is simply where people worship and go about repeated rhythms, and that actually the Western world, Melbourne, the mall, your phone, are all temples. All have their forms of worship, it's just pointed in different directions. And this concept is one that we've been exploring. Uh, I'm going to explore it more next week. Josh Ryan Butler, or he's really just Josh Butler, I think uh, Americans like to have their middle name uh, as part of their um, books. Anyway, um, so Josh Butler is going to be speaking in um, a couple of weeks, and it's really interesting chatting to him. This, the, what God's been speaking to him fits perfectly into this series, which is really cool. But I wanted to talk about something really important tonight, and I wanted to do this um, as we look at Scripture. So we're actually going to turn to the book of Acts. There's Bibles in front of you. Um, they're purple. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that if you don't have one at home. It's our gift to you. Uh, We're actually going to turn to Acts chapter 16, and we're going to turn to verse 16. And this is really, uh, we just talked about Paul and Barnabas being being sent out on, on mission into the world. And there's a number of journeys that Paul undertakes spreading the good news of Jesus beyond sort of Jerusalem, where, where Jesus had been um, crucified and rose again out beyond even the Jewish people out into different groups. And so this is one of those places he's going to, which is a city called Philippi. So we're going to pick up in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she was predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So this is not like a psychic who, or a tarot card reader who's got their own sort of business and empire and doing well. This is a woman who is a slave, and this particular ability that she has, which is to tell the future, is being used by these exploiters, these men who are using her. So she's doubly oppressed. She's oppressed because she's a slave, she's oppressed because she's used, but she's also oppressed by this spirit. So she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, this is really interesting. 
when Jesus uh, in the Gospels goes into certain places, what happens is the spiritual background of that place is actually revealed. And what's really interesting is some of the truest things said about Jesus actually come from the mouth of demons. One of the demons says, truly, you know, you're the son of God. What do you want to do with us? When people are trying to get their head around this concept, the demon's actually seeing this spiritual reality and speaking that truth. Now, it's not pure truth or it's coming in a strange container, but that's what happens here. She says, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. This is true. But you can imagine the scene as they're going about their way. And here's this woman who's like a local celebrity. Now, what she's possessed by, when you look at the Greek, is actually what's called a python spirit. Now, in the worship of Apollo, there was a temple in Philippi to the god Apollo. And at the gate of that sort of temple was this python. And you sort of had to get past the python And it was believed that Apollo had killed the python. But what they believed was she was actually then possessed by this particular python, this snake. And actually, in the ancient world, the word python was sort of double language for someone who was possessed by a spirit and would say things. Now, if you have any familiarity with the Scriptures, and it's fine if you don't, we're all at a place of learning, this is a great place to start, we find that these different images come up at different times in the Scriptures. And one of them is a snake. And we first see that early on in Scripture, and we have Eden, where Adam and Eve are created in God's image. They're living in the first temple, which was creation, and into that place they have have complete union with God. God walks around them, but that place has this moment where this snake appears, and the snake asks a deceptive question. So at this point, what this young woman is doing is saying a truth, but there's something really distracting about it. So she doesn't just yell this once. The next bit tells you how long this has been going on. She kept this up for many days. Now, a number of years ago, I went to a conference in South Africa, and there was people from all over the world came to this conference. This was when I was younger. And on the first night, I was staying in my room, and next to me was this particular group from a particular country. I'm not even going to name them because I don't want to um, seem like I'm having a go. But they sang this beautiful song. They were just singing. I was sitting there. I was just sat, and I listened to my room, this beautiful song. They all sang it together. And it was, it was incredible. I still have it in my head. I'm not even going to attempt to sing it. And they kept singing. I sat there, and I was like, this is beautiful. I sat there for half an hour just resting. I was singing this song. It was in another language. And after two hours, they were still singing this song. After seven days, they did not stop singing this song. It was torture by the end of seven days. This repeating of this phrase and this song, it stuck in my head all these years later. After a number of days, this became torture. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, now notice too, he differentiates between the young female woman who's being oppressed and the spirit. And this reminds us of Paul's words Later on in Scripture, he says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. He becomes so annoyed that he turns around and says to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I've commanded you to come out of it. And at that moment, the Spirit left it. Now, annoyed is not really, you know, it sounds like he's annoyed. He's at the movies and someone's getting heaps of notifications on their phone. And he's annoyed and he tells them to turn their phone off. 
The language here is actually stronger than that. Like he's disturbed. This is disturbing him what's going on. Because actually what's happening is that she is providing a distraction. The enemy has a strategy of distraction at play. That he's meeting this challenge of the good news of Jesus being taken into this new place and he's meeting with a spirit of distraction. Now, I didn't pray at the beginning of my talk on purpose because I actually want to pray now because this morning I preached on this same sermon and at this point some weird things happened, like there was this big crashing sound and multiple things happened. Bjorn was trying to give a word and almost fell over on the, on the carpet and a number of people came to me afterwards and said, I just found it so hard to concentrate during that sermon. So I'm just going to pray about that right now because we're speaking about our spirit. God, so we just pray and thank you, Father, that you give us heavenly focus. We want to just pray against any sense of distraction, Father, um, that perhaps was here this morning and maybe here now. We just pray against that in Jesus' name. We thank you that we can open your word, that you're king over everything, that you're king over our minds, that you create our brains in this incredible, beautiful way. So, Father, we pray that they may be focused, our brains and our spirits, on what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So often what will happen is the enemy will bring a spirit of distraction. The snake provided a distraction in the Garden of Eden. This young woman is providing a distraction. But it's really interesting because if you look at this distraction, on one hand you could say she's actually fulfilling the work that the men are trying to do here, which is spread the good news of Jesus. She's like boosting it. They've got a local celebrity boosting your message. But there's this invitation to be deceived and thinking that somehow you can rely on things apart from God. So embedded in strategies of distractions to actually take your eyes off where you need them to be, to look somewhere else and then to be hijacked. So within the strategy of distraction, distraction opens the door for the strategy of deception. First, your eyes need to be taken off something to look at something else. This is hijacking. Now, I want to just pause here and begin to talk about what this strategy of distraction looks like for us. Because we're created in this, as I just prayed, this beautiful way. Our minds are created in this beautiful way by God. And to understand how distraction works, I just want to just quickly talk about that. All of us in our brains have almost these two levels. Some people have gone as far to say it's almost like we have two minds or two brains. You don't actually have two brains in your head, you have one but it tends to have these two systems which run. The top one is, called different names, but called executive control. This is like the part of your brain that you're walking past Donut King and you've made a New Year's resolution to not eat junk, but you're walking past and there's something about the pink ice donut. Maybe it's like Homer Simpson memories when you're a child watching that show. Something is implanted in your head where you absolutely want to buy eight. (laughs) And then what happens? You're like, no, I made a news resolution. You may even think to a little trick that your executive control brain did, like write it down. You've got to keep yourself accountable. That's your like executive control, keeping yourself accountable. So it's this deliberative, slower, rational. This is where your self-control lies. 
And so this is above a secondary system, which is like the automatic system. That's what I've called it here. This is the part of you which you're breathing currently and not thinking about it. There's, if we stop and are quiet, you'll notice there's weird sounds. Cars will go by. Stuff happens. Your brain is receiving at any moment millions of bits of information and we block most of them out. So our lower system edits all of that and puts it in system so we don't have to think about it, so we can focus on singular things. So it's happening super fast. It's like an autopilot. You're not even thinking about it. And most of it's involuntary. It's habitual. You just learn to do it. But what's interesting too is it's also impulsive and it's emotional. This is like where our emotions and our fears and anxieties and desires lie. So our executive control says no. We're going to say no to that desire to have the pink donut because it's for a bigger goal. But what's interesting is you may walk in the morning and like, no, I'm not having that. But after a terrible day at work where you're exhausted and your executive control has just been beaten up all day trying to think, now it's like you stayed until 8 o'clock at work or you studied late and you walk past Donut King and they're half price. <sighs> Exhausted. You've got a little capacity left. Oh, why not? I'll start my diet tomorrow. And so our brain decides to focus. It has this sense. It's a deliberate thing to focus. You're doing it now, listening to me. And those who aren't can't hear what I'm saying. So this desire to actually focus on something. They just came back now. Like, well, what's happened? He's saying something. So there's this sense where it's this deliberate thing that we do. We choose to focus. Now, this works well when you have a healthy culture of emotions around you. When you're feeling comfortable about the emotional environment you're in. At the moment, you are all listening because no one's screaming. I was on a plane which went through some insane turbulence where the engines were screaming and my rational brain is like, it's okay, trust God, the pilot I'm sure knows what he's doing. Now that's really hard when people start screaming and a bit of the roof falls onto the floor. <laughs> and then my rational brain is like, ah. okay Mark, close your eyes. And then the girl next to me is like sobbing and screaming and like banging the back of the chair. Really difficult because the emotional environment changed. We also are able to focus when we trust the people around us and we have good relationships and highly connected relationships around us. When we're in a low stimulation environment like this one, we don't have sirens going off, we don't have four different music tracks playing, we don't have people banging on the window outside. This is a low stimulation environment. In the past, uh, people could walk out into nature. Nature calms us, focuses our minds. And all of these things give us focus. Now, at different times in different parts of human history, different parts of the world today, one might go wrong. All of a sudden, you might be in your family, it just gets a bit crazy, and you're like, okay, but I'm just going to go for a walk. People used to go for walks. Go for a walk, count to 10. Okay, one of these sectors may be bad, but I'll walk outside into the low stimulation environment. Nature, my thoughts. A falcon. <laughs> And the sense that it's an antidote and your brain relaxes and you're able to focus, okay, so what's going on here? Now, what's really interesting 
is that we live in a particular time where our focus is deeply challenged. Where actually we're often hijacked and distracted. So what happens is your automatic system can hijack like your executive control and does it through two ways. Daniel Goleman says this, there are two main varieties of distraction, sensory and emotional. Sensory is if someone started screaming now, but the one that really gets us is when we're emotionally hijacked. If someone said to you, when you're working on a big project or doing an assignment or whatever it may be doing, if someone says to you, hey, what are you doing? Someone rings you, what are you doing? I'm working on this project. Okay, when you finish, let me know because I need to ring you back because something full on has happened and I just need to warn you that it's massive and it deeply affects you. Okay, I'll speak to you in a couple of hours. You're like, no, 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 stop. And even if they hung up, you're just like, you're on that project going, what could it be? All of a sudden, what comes up? Worst case scenario, fears. Like, man, the, that automatic system's like, it's just going crazy. All that stuff's coming up because it's really difficult when you're emotionally hijacked or when someone says something to you. It's a little comment, but it's like a jibe or a dig. And all of a sudden, you're in a meeting or, or you're talking to people in a social situation and you're just gone. You're like, hang on. What were they saying about my pink donut eating habit? There's this sense we get easily emotionally hijacked. Now, you live in a time and place where we are constantly emotionally hijacked, not just by this old thing where maybe your family got frustrated you or a friend or someone yelled at you in the street, but you could keep walking. We live in a time where some of the most sophisticated means are actually harvesting your attention by emotionally and sensory hijacking your attention. We live in a time where there's an unhealthy emotional culture, not just in relation, but everywhere, where the news is screaming and the culture is increasingly anxious. We live in a time where actually we don't have these strong relational bounds to actually buffer that. We live in a time where it's not quiet, go for a walk in the woods. Actually, we live in this constant information and stimulation overlap. I'll never forget going to the mall, Box Hill Centro, the first time and coming up, this was, I don't know, 10 years ago, probably when Red was first starting, coming up the escalator and there's like, there's screens. There's now screens. And I went to the bathroom and there were screens on the hairdryer. Now you go to, I was literally, this, I kid you not, I was literally sort of writing this talk in my head and thinking about focus and just thinking over the week. And I went and got petrol. And I'm getting petrol and I'm thinking, focus. Focus is really interesting. And I'm getting petrol and I look away from the screen that's on my bowser. I'm, like, I'm not looking. So I'm, I'm doing petrol like this. <laughs> and there's like sky up there. I'm, trying, I'm gonna focus on the sky. And then I see this headline. And it's a purple cauliflower. I'm like, is there purple cauliflowers? And the headline said something like, if you really, really want to be healthy, you need to know the benefits of eating purple foods. And then I'm gone. I'm like watching it. And like, I'm literally thinking about the importance of focus, having read about focus, and I've been hijacked because my curiosity has been captured by a purple fruit, a purple cauliflower. And I want to be healthy, and I'm in my middle age, and I want to live longer. And all of a sudden, it just got me emotionally, and I'm staring at a petrol bowser about purple cauliflower. We live in an environment which wants to steal your attention. And all over, there's books, focus. This 
a mega-selling book now, where he says that the number one thing that you need in life now, even higher than intelligence to be successful, is actually focused that almost all bad things that we're seeing in the culture now can be driven back to a lack of self-control and focus. This literally just came out, everyone's reading it, incredible title, Digital Minimalism, so good. That's, that's intriguing, maybe just for me. Um, choosing a focused life in a noisy world. There is this understanding that somehow we've become distracted and frazzled. So distraction hijacks our focus to the wrong things. That's ultimately what the frustration is. And Tim Wu, in another book on attention, uh, basically called The Attention Merchants, which is how it's being engineered, our attention's constantly stolen, and that's become the basis of the contemporary economy, says this, when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we've paid attention to, whether by choice or default, and to add it another way, you are what you look at for most of the time. You are what you focus on and you mimic. Friends begin to mimic each other's mannerisms, and you begin to mimic what you see. So what does that look like in a world where you're constantly hijacked and you're looking at things you don't want to be looking at? Okay, back to the text. So, this young woman has been distracting, and is distracting with a strategy of deception. Paul here is facing a challenge of distraction. Verse 19, when the owners realized of this young woman that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful to Romans to accept or practice. Now, this is smart. This is where the deceptions happen. It began with the distraction, but now we're into the deception. They didn't, like, do this. Like, these guys are not interested in Roman law. They're not, like, legal eagles who just are there to protect the law. They want revenge. They want revenge on Paul and Silas for ruining their little game of expectation. And because they're in a marketplace, the Agora, which is where people hung out, all of a sudden it gets very serious. Verse 22 the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. This is like a Twitter mob, but it's not a Twitter. It's like an actual mob. And, and, and the magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged and they were thrown into prison, the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So this has now gone bad. Distraction, deception, now oppression. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stock. So they're not just in the jail now. They've been beaten. They're not just in the jail. They're actually tied up and they're put in the innermost, darkest, worst cells of this prison. But here's the pivot in the prison. Here's the antidote to distraction. There's always a pivot verse in so many of these stories. And when you read Scripture, being aware of what's the pivot point, this is where the story changes. Now, just think for a second before we read the pivot verse, what would your state be? You're going about your business, trying to do Jesus' work, or you're just going about your life, and all of a sudden this distraction has led to a deception, led to oppression, and now you're in a prison. You're badly beaten. 
You're in the heart of the prison. Your freedom has been taken. Now, this does not seem to be the plan. The plan now just seemed to go out the window. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And once the prison doors flew open, everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before the Paul, Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. When they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, as had his whole household. They then go before the magistrates, their legal messes undone. And I just want to jump to verse 40, the end of this section. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, who's a woman who's leading this nascent beginning church in Philippi, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Complete pivot. Complete turnaround. What's the pivot? The pivot is God's power. The pivot is that God is transcendent. The pivot is that God is going to do his business regardless of what humans do. But as humans, we have this partnership, this invitation to work with God. And what do Paul and Silas do? They worship. Worship is focused. Worship is a deliberate decision to focus your attention and direction of thought and heart and mind upon something. It may not be God. You may worship something else. You may worship vintage cars or Persian rugs. But in this moment, despite what is happening around them, at midnight in a prison, Paul and Silas decide to focus and they focus not on their wounds, they focus not on their chains, they focus not on the inner cell, they focus not on the jail, they focus not on the weapons around them, they focus not on their circumstances, they focus and praise God. Now this is not something that just came to them, this is a pattern and a rhythm which is built into their lives. Paul, for 10 years, is unknown after his conversion on the road, Syrian road, on the road to Damascus. We don't know what he did but what we speculate, and Tom Wright says this in his new biography of Paul, he says in that time he believes that Paul read and prayed and worshipped. As a young Jewish boy, Paul prayed and worshipped. Silas and the early church that had been sent out of Antioch praised and worshipped. When you do these patterns like we do, week after week, praying, singing these songs, you're actually strengthening the muscle of your focus. Tim Wu says in that book, he says, the only antidote, and he's not, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but he says it's like in the past, there was one, the church would spend its time with prayers 
and services, focusing people's attentions on God. But now we live in a secular temple, where he says, basically, it's like the, the secular cultures now become like a church, and it puts your, star, your attention on stuff which is basically to exploit you. In some ways, we're now like the python girl, exploited, and our attention is used. But when we step into worship, this stuff is now revolutionary. To come and open this text now in the 21st century, in the age of frazzle and destruction, is incredibly revolutionary. And worship is not just good for your soul, but it's also good for your mind and your body. And praise, which is what Paul and Silas are doing here, is attention-focused, it's focused on God, but particularly on an element of God's nature, God's goodness. Praise is attention-focused on God's goodness. And we can understand if they worshipped and they sang some psalms where they're questioning God and, and, and wondering what on earth's going on, and that's a legitimate response. We're books like Lamentation, but in this moment, they deliberately focus on God's goodness, what He's done in the past, the goodness that he's doing now and the goodness that he's going to do in the future. As I said, we become what we choose to gaze at. The myth of narcissists, of narcissism, is that he looked into the reflection in the lake and fell in love with himself. But worship is actually looking to God and looking to Christ, which makes us Christ-like. So this is a deliberate strategy to say, I want to become more like Christ. More than me is looking upon the person who is more than me. Praise is a posture. Isaiah says in Isaiah 61 verse 3, that we should put on a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Notice it's a clothing. A clothing speaks of our identity. We can develop this identity of negativity, of always thinking the worst case scenario, of every thought going to this negative place, of seeing always limitations versus possibilities. And you know how I can say that? Because that was me for so much of my life. I don't know if it's like genetic or if it's like whatever, but I had this thing over me so often, and maybe it's because I've been through bad experiences, where I focused on the negativity. And there's a point where you realize that you begin to wear it like a garment of despair, a spirit of despair, where this is a choice. This is taking a responsibility to partner with God and actually put on a different kind of identity, an identity based on God's possibility through praising Him. I just want to put it out there. Some of you, like me, are wearing a spirit of despair. It affects your brain pathways, your attitudes. It's an identity. It's when you ask, this stuff always happens to me. It happened to those people, but oh, it always happens to me. And God actually wants to change that. That's why he wants me to give this sermon tonight. God wants to take off the spirit of despair and put on a garment of praise. Praise is a weapon. Praise is a weapon. We did it just then. When we sung and praised 
we actually went ahead, like in Chronicles 20, 220, ahead of the Lord's army, and we praised. When you're up against it, don't use the, the, the techniques, the power of the world, the weapons of the world. We actually use praise. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I've been saved from my enemies. So Psalm 13, verse 8. Some of you are in situations, and you've got maybe people against you, situations against you, health against you, whatever it may be, and you just want to come up with a solution, but God actually is the solution. We need to just simply focus on Him through praise. Paul and Silas realized that praise is a weapon stronger than the swords of the Romans in that moment. And I love this one. Praise begins before the miracle. Now, all of a sudden, if Paul and Silas are sitting there going, oh my goodness, this is terrible. We're in jail. We've been beaten up. We're in shackles in the inner cell, and all of a sudden there's chains fall off and the doors open, I would probably be praising. Any of us would. Thank you, God. They praised before that happened. So praise begins before the miracle. Johannes Hartel in his book Heartfire says this, praise is the conscious act of turning one's inward gaze to God and making his beauty and greatness more important to you than all the darkness and sorrows you face. I'm not looking at the circumstances. I'm not looking at the shackles. I'm not looking at the wounds. I'm not looking at the bars. I'm not looking at the jailers. I'm not looking at the wall. I'm looking at you, God, and your beauty. I'm not looking at my circumstances. I'm not looking at what I've been labeled by people in their negativity. I'm not looking at what I've been labeled by myself in my negativity. I'm not looking at the circumstances which seem to come against me now. I'm actually just going to focus on the beauty and goodness of God. And when we do that, something incredible begins to happen. Because praise builds temples, even turning prisons into temples. So this thing that we've been talking about, that the whole world's meant to be this living temple. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, we encounter these characters, Simeon and Anna, who have been in the temple. Anna particularly, it says, has been praising God day and night, fasting and praying and worshipping. And she's probably the last, and Simeon, in the last in a line of people who did that. But the temple falls, and we're, not, we're now called to be like those people, but outside of the temple, where we actually take that spirit of continual praise wherever we may be, and this would be actually shocking to be read. And let me tell you why. There's a detail. Some of you would have got the fact that we've got a python spirit over this girl, and that's linked to the snake in Genesis. But you may have missed that verse 26, it says there's an earthquake. An earthquake would have been understood by Hebrew readers as linking back to Mount Sinai where God turned up and formed Israel into this community and came and tabernacled amongst them. When the ground shook, it meant God's presence was coming. So all this imagery of this man who trembles before Paul and Silas, people being freed from oppression, all this imagery links back to Exodus, links back to God coming, links back to the temple that was on that mountain. Wherever you are, when you praise, you turn that place into a temple of the living God. And that's the invitation. Now, I wanted to share something to end. And I've sort of been holding on how long to share this or whether to share it at all. 
and I think it was actually a bit of a pivot point. And I didn't share it this morning because it's actually relevant to the 5 p.m. Now, those of you who have been coming for the last 12 months realize that we did this pivot point. I'm so bad with dates. Maybe it was like September, October last year. And what happened was, after one of the services, there was this sense where we just felt that it was just struggling for God to break through. That there was this mood that would sometimes come in and people, even visitors, would actually say, how we preached and I just felt like this fog and how do we break through and that God wanted something more. And after one of the services, like everyone had gone home, a handful of us actually went into that side room there through that door and prayed till like 9.30. Like, God, break through. God, do something. God, what do we do? Do we stop this service? Do we do this? Do we change this? And I just felt like God said, just trust me, trust me. The next day, and God does this, he turns up in really strange ways. I was having my day off, which is Mondays, and I'm just giving this to God in the morning because I I don't know what to do. Like, God, I know that you want to come in power over people. I know that you want to do something. And I just gave it to God and went about the rest of my day. So anyway, I was watching TV, music videos, and music video came on, and it was one of those moments where in the middle of a music video by the English group Friendly Fires, who hadn't done an album for ages and just released, uh, there's a fan there right front row, that's my daughter. Um, and um, I was watching this video clip, and again, so it's nothing that spiritual. In the video clip, it's simply some young people in Sicily, and they're having a party, and the band's playing, two of them are on like the turntables, but the singer is actually in the midst of the people. And he's singing, but he has his eyes closed. I actually did a screenshot for you, which is not that great. But there he is. Normally, often singers are on stage. But what, it was like I just saw this, and like Holy Spirit slowed down this video clip in my mind, and he pointed at the singer, and said, that's what I want people in the five to be like. Surrounded by people in the world, but with their eyes closed, only focused on God and singing his song of praise to the point where it becomes infectious to people around them. This song is called Love Like Waves. The reason the entire series was actually named after this Friendly Fire song like, I turn up to the office on Tuesday or something, like, hey, Britt, okay, so there's this song, it's shot in Sicily, and just watch it on my phone, and Britt's like, what the heck is going on? It's all part of the way of learning to work with me and the discipleship. Here's this thing. I actually think this is what God wants to do. God wants to do a different thing at this moment in an age of weapons of mass distraction. God wants to create a different people, a people centered on praise. And that imagery here, he wants to just let his love like waves break out into the world. And he wants to do that amongst you. And he wants to do that here. So what we're going to do now is we're actually going to move into a space where we're going to praise. We're actually going to praise God and focus our attention on him. And whatever you are facing in your life, 
Whatever identity you're carrying, maybe you're carrying an identity of a spirit of despair. Maybe you're carrying you know, heaviness. You're carrying where you seem to be confronted by enemies that you can never beat. God is with you. You just have to praise Him and let Him do it. So I really believe that God wants to do some stuff now. We're going to meet around the communion table as we do each week. We're going to dip that bread in the juice, which symbolizes Jesus' blood and Jesus' body, if you feel welcome to do that. But let's praise. There's going to be people on the side to pray for you. And let's step into a moment now of praise and let God do His work amongst us. So let's praise.